we need to move away. I don't, I, I don't have a smarter way of saying this, but like we need to move away from grades as like a transact. I don't know. Grades as transaction or grades as the point of learning um, versus finding ways and, and like, well, I, let me ask you this question. You talked a lot about students not having the space to take risks um, or students not really not having the space to fail. Right. How, which I totally agree. I think we need to find ways and reasons for students to have the space to take risks and improve and get better. So how do you create that? Like, how would you create those systems or that incentive? been a little while. Welcome back to The Broken Copier, a conversation about teaching. My name is Jim Mayers. My name is Marcus Luther. Uh, so some reminders about the show. This is an independent and listener-supported podcast. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators to bring helpful analysis and collaboration to folks working in the classroom. Most importantly, the show is about saying thank you to teachers out there, past, present, and future, who understand their classroom practice through a lens of equity and change. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to hear from you on social media at The Broken Copier, and you can subscribe to episodes and other writing at thebrokencopier.substack.com. If you'd like to support, uh, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast wherever you stream or to text your friends a link to an episode so they can tune in as well. Marcus, welcome back. Happy October. I know. It, it, there's always a sense of, like, it's a little ominous to change September to October on the whiteboard. That's always something yeah. I struggle with. But yeah, so we know it's been a bit, and I'll admit personally that the double whammy of school starting back up and our household losing its grasp on its uh, cherished bedtime routine with uh, mm-hmm. our almost three-year-old uh, has thrown a little wrench in recording, but especially the three time zone difference. But we're back. We're ready to pick back up, especially we've got stuff to talk about after both our years have started. But today we're going to talk about an article we both came across about a professor at NYU who was fired for, quote, a course that was too hard uh, and realized that not only were there points that I think tie into this podcast, but also that I think there's going to be several that we come out from a different lens which makes for a good discussion. So yeah. uh, that article, in case you are wanting to read it first, is titled, At NYU, Students Were Failing Organic Chemistry, Who Was to Blame? Uh, it's in the New York Times. It'll be uh, linked in the show notes. Uh, so feel free to give it a read first if you'd like, but we'll talk about it in summation uh, as we go through. Uh, but yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um. I'm excited for this. I think there's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack with this. It wasn't really surprising that it was a big news story and it was definitely all over my Twitter. Um, before we get back, well, before we get into that, I, let's, how's the school year going? I know, I don't think we've officially reconnected since you were back in the classroom. Oh yeah, no, it's been this, uh, this five weeks in. So yeah, it's yeah. been a little bit for us. Uh, and I am overall like really positive and jazzed about where we're at. Uh, it's just been uh, 
just like that reminder, like for me, like in the summer that I, I spent a lot of time thinking about school, thinking about education. And, but when you have the absence of the students, like in those seats in that classroom community, which has been fantastic to start the year, uh, it just like, there's like a level of joy that comes from just being in the classroom that I appreciate. And it's tiring. It's exhausting. I've got almost 200 essays coming in in the mm-hmm. next 48 hours if things go to plan. And like, yeah, it's tiring, but I definitely have had a really good start to the year and I'm really excited about the path forward. It's one of those starts of the year that makes you think about all the potential that's still on the table. And that's like the best, that's the best part of this work. And I know we're going to talk today about some of the harder stuff of this work, but uh, yeah, I'm in a great place. What about you? Yeah. Well, first I owe you a thank you because, um, so we're doing the TQE notes. I, you sold me on Twitter, so I got that. Um, and then I haven't done, I, I, my, I, I have been feeling a little bit of not really reluctance, but, um, well, I guess I'd use the word reluctance students, you know, we'll do like a 20 minute chunk of like reading and the notes are kind of, uh, sparse to say the least. So I'm just trying to like build the habit and investment in like, you know, taking active notes and like making that meaningful rather than just staring on the page, which, um, yeah, from some of the things that you've been sharing on Twitter, I've been, I've definitely benefited from that as well. And we're doing that. And then we also did, um, I did a revision lesson where, uh, that I, I also think I saw this from you on Twitter. I think I did it a little differently than you described, but basically kids had all their drafts up on their laptops and we kind of played like silent musical chairs where, they got up, they read another draft, left sticky notes, uh, uh, like physically on the desks. And we did like two rotations of that. And it went, that went really well. And I saw a huge, a huge, huge, huge improvement, uh, very immediately and concretely in the drafts. So the one, thanks Two, those are some things that have been going well. Um, yeah, I think it's the, for me, it's been similarly exciting uh, to like build classroom culture. And I've got some of my culture systems up and running that I really like. I'm doing the space cat videos again, and I've adapted AP seminar. There's a, there's a credibility, there's like a credibility framework that people use in research called Raven, um, which is like an analysis framework to establish credibility. But the award that I have in AP seminar is now the Three-Eyed Raven Award, which is the peer the peer nominated uh, system. So it's adapted from my my weekly Space Cat videos. But now uh, students have the opportunity to earn to become elected the Three-Eyed Raven for a period of one week in AP Seminar, uh, and as recognition for that, they earn one sticker, which is very exciting. Yeah, uh, that's I love that. I love like we've had definitely like like the paper crown for like best title on essays and stuff. Like just finding ways to celebrate is definitely important for a classroom community early on. And like last year, I didn't do as many celebrations with my juniors and seniors in my AP course, and kind of like focused it on English ten. And yeah. this year, it's like well, I have some of those English ten students who are convinced to jump into AP. So it was like well, they're gonna miss it if we don't have it. So we've got everything in play and we even have uh our advisory once a week uh meets and i leaned into the idea of just sharing like starting off with just everyone going around one thing's positive going on one thing negative and they have the option to pass 
and just going with my octopus theme. I even got like the reversible octopus. Apparently, it's like this plush little thing that you can like flip from happy to sad. Like one of my like, students my kids has are that. Are tired already of the octopus thing? Like every wall has some sort of an octopus analogy from the Kiwi yeah. method to our culture wall. But like, I, I kid you not, this is a group of like high schoolers, and their favorite part of the week is when we pull out the octopus that becomes either happy or sad. And we spend like 20 minutes just like sharing. This is an advisory class that's built for this. But just like them sharing, like hearing about some stories that make me like very, uh, these new drivers that makes me believe in the value of high quality uh, booster and child safety seats for my kids in their driving experiences. Because when you hear sophomores talk about driving, it is a little bit uh, frightening. But overall, I just like, I think, investing in community in a way that's sustainable, not just this first week, second week that we talked about in our previous episode has been the part of this year that gives me the most hope that can, what, what seeds can you plant that you can keep watering going forward? Yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's hard to understate, uh, how much high school students actually do like really corny things. Uh, even if they, even if they pretend that they don't. So I stick with it all. I stick to my guns. Not to mention we're at that point of our career. Like we're not like the cool out of college teachers anymore. Uh, It's more like, oh, we're at that stage where the hairline has receded enough where you can just own the dad jokes. Mm -hmm. You can own the the corniness. And it's just a fun place to be. Like I'm excited for this new stage. It really is. But yeah, you ready to get rolling? I am. Let's do it. Okay. So uh, updates aside, uh, it's time to talk about this piece. So I gave the title earlier, but I want to actually read the opening line of this piece. This is an article in The New Yorker that set online world abuzz uh, begins with, quote, in the field of organic chemistry, Maitland Jones Jr. has a storied reputation. And then it goes on to list all of his accolades as a professor. It explains then how a large group of his students, 82 out of 350 in his weed out organic chemistry course. And we'll note, we have two English teachers talking about an organic chemistry uh, course in this episode. They signed a petition about the difficulty of his course at NYU and the university ultimately terminated his contract. And it was not a tenured professor. He was on a year to year contract and they decided not to renew his contract before this school year. And then, so this article focused a lot on his perspective. I mean, it's got like the sympathetic shots of him standing in, you know, poignant positions. Like it's very much, you can see where the input of the article was. Uh, And there's a lot to unpack in it though, uh, ranging from the question of how teachers and professors need to adjust or do they need to adjust too much to the feedback of students, to the role of grades in learning, not just at the college level, but how it trickles down. And really just the idea of like education itself, what is a college education supposed to be uh, in terms of from a challenge to a certification? Uh, And so we're gonna spend a good time going through this article piece by piece, something that we wanna do in some of these future episodes where we build it around one piece. Uh, But before we dive into all these nuances and complexities, Jim, just what was your initial takeaway? You, you open this up, you scroll through it. What are the first things that go across your head? So the first thing that stood out was 82 out of, three, uh, 82 out of 350 students. Um, to me, it's definitely, a, it's definitely a significant portion of students who seem to have a real problem 
Um, I imagine that there were probably more students who did not sign the petition who also, you know, felt like they didn't love the class, um, but just didn't want to put their names on the petition. But my first thought, my, my initial thought was like, well, you know, 82 out of 350 is, doesn't really seem that bad. Like it, it actually seems like there's a pretty overwhelming majority of students who don't seem to have an issue with the course. Um, and then my thought, my, basically my, my takeaways from the article were like, it kind of seems I was, I was kind of on the side of, of the, of Dr. Jones um, because yeah, I, I don't know. Like I've, and I'm also thinking about this from obviously a K-12 perspective, but I remember my college experience and I remember I remember organic chemistry being like the keystone class. I don't know if keystone is the right word, but like that's like a very that's like a turning point class for a lot of chemistry majors and people who are anticipating going to medical school. And my big one of my big takeaways with college was that or with the article was that in a college setting, which is way different than a high school setting, you have a significant responsibility to learn independently. Like you don't meet with your professors very often and you, you are expected, like, you know, I talk with my high school students all the time about how you have all this unstructured time and, you know, throughout the day, maybe you don't even have a class until 11 a.m. or you, you have a class that, you know, you don't have any classes on Fridays. And the reason why that's the case is because students are, students are expected to be reading and producing work independently on their own. And I, so I kind of wonder, one, I thought it's that it seemed pandemic related too, because I, since coming back to in-person instruction, I have noticed in my students, like, not, I, 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 I want to be careful about assigning judgment to this, but like, a certainly like a reluctance and a surprise. Like, if I give like very direct in the moment feedback, um, either on like behavior or academics, um, in the way that I'm sort of used to, just by walking up to a student and saying like, you're not on task. You need to do this classwork right now instead of this other work. They'll get frustrated or upset and defensive. And they'll say, well, I'm done. This, like, I, I'm done. I had a student recently say, like, well, I have five sources in my annotated bibliography. Like, what do you want me to do? I, I, I sort of earned the right to focus on this other work because I've done the easy work for your class. And I'm like, yeah, well, five sources for the research paper is a minimum. And you can't just sit here and like do other classwork because you're not going to get this time back. Um, and, but yeah, I think students have been really sort of used to and socialized with from remote learning, like a, this huge degree of independence, which I do think can be very valuable, but also like they haven't had people telling them that they're wrong or, like, and I'll have, I'll have student, like, I've also like g given in the moment feedback to your, 
on giraffes where it's like, no, this claim does not make sense. Or this argument is not, this, this is not a strong argument and you need to go back and do this, this, and this. And they're like, well, you should, you know, you should, they don't like say this directly, but I have had students basically tell me routinely this year, like that my, that my feedback is too harsh. Um, and that's been something that I've been continu- continuing to think about because like, how, how do I operate differently or should I be operating differently in that setting? Like my instinct is to say, no, like this is the bar and it's, we do have a responsibility to be clear around building active feedback. And I think one of the reasons, again, I know that this is a lot of like K-12 experience, but you know, one of the reasons I think that we know remote learning, I think that we know very broadly remote learning did not work for most students and that um, it was not as effective. And to me, the takeaway from that is like, well, the reason that we know that it doesn't work is because high school students need someone constantly. Part of the, the job of the teacher is not just to teach the content. It is also to motivate students and to hold them accountable to actually produce the work. So I think that one of the reasons why I think that one of the reasons why we know remote learning was bad was because there was not that person on a regular basis circulating, walking around, holding them accountable, you know, in the moment, like on a moment to moment basis, which I think is what you should be doing as the teacher. And so like, because of that experience, when I read the article, it kind of tracked with basically students getting upset for a teacher saying, no, like you're not, (laughs) you're not hitting the bar and this is what it is. And this is the bar and the bar hasn't changed. The bar for the material has not changed uh, regardless of the pandemic. And the only thing that I, the only thing that has really challenged that perspective was I was reading some of the accounts of the students who were saying like, you know, I, I read one account from a student who was like, you know, I got a B plus in the course. It was my only B plus. And I was a straight A student, uh, in everything else. And, um, I found, I did find his teaching methods to be like very esoteric and more of like a display of his genius versus helping me understand the material which I do think that is problematic, right? Like I do think even in a college setting, there is a responsibility that the professors have to translate complicated material to tangible, concrete takeaways um, that students, that are accessible to students. So I think that's like a critical job of the professor. But yeah, that's kind of a lot. But I was like, I was definitely torn. And my initial my initial reaction was like, well, I don't know. Like, he, the guy wrote the textbook for organic chemistry. And he's saying, like, he's saying that this is the bar and this is what you need to be able to do. And if we have students who are not able to do it, then that is unfortunate. But, like, not everyone, not everyone is going to succeed in the course. And I think to some extent that that is okay. Okay. I'm going to 
flip back on something you said earlier, but bef- like my initial thing, because I think I had the opposite initial takeaway, which was that all these accolades were about what this person had accomplished. Like, like you said, he literally wrote the book on organic chemistry, but that doesn't mean that you're good at teaching it. And there weren't a lot of accounts of like, the article did not open with glowing anecdotes of how much students had learned from this teacher. And, and the degree of, yeah, you have the B plus student, but like one quote in the article that after the second midterm, the average in the course hovered around 30%. So like this was mm-hmm. pretty severe. Uh, it seemed like in terms of like the challenge of this course, I, I'm assuming these are like multiple choice assessments. And I think it, it, we're going to dive into some other stuff around grading and like just pedagogically, like what, how do you assess learning? But you were talking about your classroom and I'm curious, like you, you're, I think it's very important. I agree to establish like high quality feedback and building a culture of that feedback in your classroom. Have you asked your students, like, like, is, is it the feedback itself or is it the way it's being delivered? Is that something that you've like surveyed them about or like had that conversation like collectively just like get their feedback on like, what's the best way to get that feedback from you, the instructor? Yeah, I have. And every, uh, at the end of every unit, I have like a unit feedback reflection and assessment form where I have like some numerical statements where they'll score it on like one to seven. Um, so it's, you know, it's statements like the course is appropriately challenging. The course is moving at a pace that's reasonable. Um, and like one of the statements I think is some is around feedback. I know there's a statement around feedback where it's like feedback is clear, um, and accessible and it's definitely true. It, so yeah, like there's, and then there's written, but students can write like open-ended responses too of like how they think the feedback, the course is going. Um, and those have been, broadly positive but you will have like of course there's of course there's going to be different you know not everyone likes the class not everyone thinks the class is 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 good not everyone thinks the like the feedback is is appropriate but like i'm not i you can't be it's you 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 don't have the capacity as the teacher to like deliver hyper individualized feedback precisely in the way that students want all the time. Like I, a lot of, I do, um, I don't do a lot of written comments on drafts. I will give, I give the feedback is delivered. Like when I do a round of draft or when I get a round of essays, for example, um, First, there's a there's like a peer and self review where you score yourself on the rubric before you hit submit, and then I'll read the essays. Careful, I'll read the essays, but like I'm reading those essays fast, and like I have a very clear sense of what the essays need to do need to be, and within even even for a longer research report, it really only takes me. I only have to get about halfway through the essay before I'm like. 95% certain of where where it's going to score on the rubric because I can see the analytical skills, I can see the arguments being developed and you know, you have to score them fast. You have to get the like that, you have to turn the feedback around fast. So I grade I grade all the essays. 
on the rubric with not not very much limited um, feedback and or not very much written feedback. And so then the students get their grades right away. And then once I post the grades, the, the next lesson will be trends. Like this is where you are on the rubric. This is where you, th- if you scored here on the rubric, then this is what you need to do. If you, you know, very like concrete, actionable things. And I will try to model uh, like high, medium and low, like actionable trends for high, medium and low scoring essays for a focus area for things that they need to work on. But I just, I find my, I don't find that it's a very good use of my time. And it's a lot of the time students, I don't want to be spending hours cop like pasting the same comment or writing an individualized comment on a student's essay. If they don't, if they don't find that actionable or meaningful and like, for a majority of the students, the draft rubric essays will like that system works very well. And then the final piece for like my school has a, like a mandatory uh, differentiated after-school tutoring system. And so then the way that the system goes is I will conference with anyone about any essay uh, one-on-one and, and give you written feedback. Like if a student emails me to ask me written feedback and I, I remind them of that every time I'm like, no, I haven't posted written comments on your draft, but if you would like me to, if you would find that valuable, then I will post written comments if you request it. Uh, but not very many students do request it. And so that makes it a little bit more meaningful. And then we also have this student hours tutoring structure where at the end of every at the end of every round of essays, I will say, if you would like me to conference with you one on one individually about your essay, let me know and I'll sign you up for student for student hours and we can go through it that way. And much more students will opt into that like in person verbal feedback, because I think that's I I think that's a lot more actionable than the written comments. so yeah, I think I think maybe I've lost the thread of, of the question overall, but I'm trying what I'm trying to do is draw the through line for how what is the what is a sustainable and actionable way to give feedback to many, many students all at once. Because in general, I think that it's more the more the more full cycle, the more full writing cycles you go through the better. And if you take too long on a writing cycle, then it will become boring because, you know, it'll just become boring because you're sticking with one thing for too long. And it's also just better for practice. Like the way to get better is to write more. (laughs) Uh, And so the more, the more full cycle essays that uh, essay cycles that we can get through, the better, I think the better off the students are. Um, But yeah, I think, it's it's interest it is interesting to think about and whether or not like feedback systems need to change because i definitely i definitely want to be adaptive to like what students are saying that they need um but you have to be super clear with what your time is and what your capacity is and where you're investing uh where you're investing your time for the feedback and i've just found that written comments on all the drafts 
unless it's like copying and pasting, like if I have very, if I have one skill that I'm looking for, like using a signaling word to show relationships between ideas, then I can go through and highlight the signaling words easily and just copy and paste and say, good job using the signaling word. This is, this is good. But unless I'm sort of like going through the drafts very quickly and copy pasting those feedback comments in, um, it becomes to, to me, it becomes like not just not very feasible. Yeah. And I appreciate all that. I also appreciate all the systems and rationales behind kind of what you're doing. I did a little bit of disconnect from what you mentioned earlier because the feed, the problem with feedback that you were naming was like the communication of that feedback to students. At times you gave examples not going well and the yeah. communication of expectations. And then you just talked about the process, which is a very good process of feedback. But I think that actually almost parallels what you saw in the article where like you have this professor who's communicating this learning and that, that process was not going well. I'm not saying that that's that you have like students petitioning or anything. But like, not yet. Like, like, and then the response to the professor being said, hey, what you're communicating isn't going well with certain students was for him to then lay out in this New York Times article, essentially, that was based around his uh, viewpoint, uh, his process and all his justification and rationale. So it's interesting that your response to that question seemed to parallel the process of that article, at least in what I was hearing. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I th I think it's fair. I think where my I've been thinking about this a lot because I mean direct. I think to I think to assert like I don't want students to be I definitely don't want students to be feeling like diminished or slighted or even offended by some of my feedback like by feedback that I'm giving, but like it is okay for them to be wrong and it is okay. Like, I don't think necessarily you need to like dance around that fact and reminding them in the moment, like the it's, this isn't this, it, you need to be clear. You need to be very clear with students if they are struggling. No, this is not correct. Here's how to make it. Here's how to improve. And if you're not crystal clear and very direct with that feedback, um, which is one, which is one reason why I think multiple choice questions for reading can be really helpful with that, um, because you need to. I think that you need to be very clear about what the bar is for what what a bar is, what the bar is for like the way that the writing can look or whether or not an argument is 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 actually working or not. And so, yeah, like basically I think what I'm trying to say is it's okay if, if very direct, if it's okay, if students like don't are, are made uncomfortable sometimes by the fact that their essay is not great or the fact that their essay needs to improve, um, you don't need to be rude about it, but you should be direct and clear. Um, and I have, I have seen more students like struggling with that post-pandemic than I have pre-pandemic. So that's kind of my only where I'm at right now. Okay. I think I have the right question here now that it, like in terms of where we can get to where we probably maybe approach this differently. 
you look at that, those results, the 30% average on the midterms, the 82 students petitioning. If you're, if you give an essay, if you give an assessment and you have a significant amount of students struggling, is your first result to look at is like the professor, like my job is to hold the bar and get there. Or is your first result to question your own practices as a teacher? Yeah. I mean, the 30% on the midterm is not good. And so if you have that data and you have these students, I mean, yeah, if students were doing to him what they were doing to me, I would change a lot. <laughs> I would fundamentally change a lot for sure. Um, but it, it it made me wonder. It really just kind of made me wonder about like, when should a student fail? Like when, what is the bar? Should students fail at all? Should they fail easily? Um, what is the relationship to the professor, uh, to the instructor versus the student? Who's, who's responsible for what? Um, and I don't think, sadly, I don't think anywhere, even in, or in college or in K-12 education, that that is a very clear bar. You have all these different, you have all these different grading systems um, for, that are completely different across school systems. You have different levels. I mean, that's one argument, like in favor of standardized testing is a way, is a way for colleges to assess, you know, knowledge. Well, not, not so much knowledge, but certainly skill uh, in a way that is somewhat consistent around despite different, and I'm not a fan of like standardized testing. That's not the argument, but I understand the rationale of like, all right, all these schools are doing whatever they want with their grading systems and their policies. And a 3.5 GPA at this school can mean something radically different than at another school. So providing a standardized assessment can, can in theory, uh, give us an understanding that is disconnected from that differentiated context. Um, and I think that there can be some value to that, but I think the, the, problem is the problem is a lack of clarity around what we what i had mentioned before which is i don't think anyone i i i think that there are some good ideas but it's it's the wild west out there in terms of when a student should fail and in that that's really problematic because that's just interjected with personal experiences and personal beliefs and like you know it's completely disconnected from any kind of standardized system uh, across schools for, for when you should fail. Yeah. You know, like organic chemistry is what it is. It, it shouldn't really matter when you, if you take it at NYU or, you know, UConn or name any other school that is the class that's the content is the same, I think, and should kind of be the same. True. But also in pragmatic, understanding that we both have having i took organic chemistry and got this degree from nyu means a very different thing from generic state school etc and like i think that also in our world of higher ed like that brings up the idea of like what does a weed out course mean in an institution that's weeded out by having a like 
10, 15% acceptance rate. And like mm -hmm. the students who are walking in there are supposedly based on that system already at a higher level. Uh, and they're paying 70 K a year to get that certification. And they're upset, uh, the idea. And then it brings in the idea of great inflation. Like there was an article, uh, in, in the Harvard Crimson that was talking about how like the average GPA went up to almost like, I think it's like a 3.7 or a 3.8. And if you're in a world where all your peers are averaging pretty much all A's and A minuses, to my understanding, like, and that is the baseline and mm -hmm. you are getting a B or getting a C in a course, like you don't have the space from the student's perspective to have that lower grade in your college experience. If you're then applying against those same students for these high tier jobs, like, the fact that the grade inflation has gone to where it has in a way eliminates the space for risk. Like I think back to my college experience and my best professor I've ever had, like I knew walking into that course, there was no way I was going to get an A and I took him once I took him again and I took him again. And every time I signed up, I knew my GPA was going to drop a little bit, but I didn't care because my future and where I was wanting to go, it was okay. The difference between having you know, a three, nine or a three, eight, like that wasn't a big deal. It wasn't going to affect my future, but like, I don't think students have the space for that in the same way that at a high school level, I think, let's say you have like one valedictorian or like these ward. And then like that one student gets it, but then all the students who aren't valedictorians, like there's still a lot of really strong students who don't get the valedictorian award. But let's say you have 10, 15, 30 valedictorians at certain schools. And now if you're not part of that elite group and there's 30 of them, that's like not being a valedictorian actually is a bigger thing. So I do think that that is part of this conversation too, that students don't have the space to just focus on the learning. And it makes me wonder, like, especially at that higher tier of the A versus the B, do grades more often help or hurt learning? Because in my experience, I've seen so often the students focusing on the grade gets away yeah. in the way of the students focusing on the learning. And I do think a lot of this grade reform that we're seeing across the country is to try and adjust to that context in the same yeah. way that, you know, if you have a student, because I think we have some archaic parts of our grading system that do need to be addressed. Like, for instance, like the cumulative average, like let's say you have a student in your course and they're writing essays that are different relatively, but this, these writing skills translate across the course. Is that fair? To, like, they For sure, the yeah. Skills? So let's say you have a student who averages 75% on every single essay throughout the course. And then you have a student who starts with a 20 and then gets a 40 and then gets a 60 and then gets mm -hmm. 80 and then gets 100. If you average that out, they're getting a 60 for the course. Who's the student that you want to hire? Who's the student who has the, the, the skills at the end of the course? It's the student who showed significant improvement, but our grading scale doesn't create space for that. You don't get a that unit one assessment typically that you don't get to retake that to show your mm -hmm. learning. Because if the goal of the grade at the end of the course is to say students have learned this, it's kind of a lie in a lot of our systems because mm -hmm. the grade they got in unit one, they probably didn't get a chance to retake and show that demonstrated growth on their learning. I think that's where some of the pushbacks coming from is that we do have teachers who are putting in these systems for revision and retake. And if you're a student who's had that opportunity and then you go to this organic chem and here's your multiple mm -hmm. choice test, 
you know, that's going to basically decide your future in your eyes. And you don't have a chance to like demonstrate growth and like show your learning beyond just A, B, C, D. Like, yeah, I'd push back a little bit too. Again, without knowing the context, I've never been in a class bigger than 50, let alone 350. So yeah. I, I mean, it's a different world, but it, yeah. and I know I've hit on a few tangents here, but I do think that from the student perspective, them advocating for themselves makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm de- I, I agree that I, I don't know where I am on this question now. I will say that like my initial reaction, my initial reaction when I read the article was like, well, kind of on the side of the professor. Um, and then I read some more about it and I've been thinking about it just kind of extended. And of course I've been thinking about it in terms of how it applies to my own context. And now I would just say like, I'm not sure. I think that the students should advocate for themselves. Um, they're college students. They are incredibly smart. Um, I'm sure that they, and, and, and I would want to pause on what I think is an, inc- an extremely important point that you made. They're paying a lot of money. They're paying a lot of money for this course. And that introduces significant equity problems because it's also, once you introduce that variable, if your parents, if your rich hedge fund parents are just bankrolling your NYU education, and then you may be like, oh, whatever, I have a C, I'm passing, OCHEM. I'll, I'll end up being a doctor at my dad's private practice eventually. It's fine. That is not the case for everyone. And so I think that is extremely high stakes. And this is a complete assumption on my part, but I would not be surprised at all to learn that the students who were petitioning felt a much more significant material connection to their grades than some of the students who did not. Um, again, it's just conjecture. I could be completely wrong, but I think that's a that's a huge equity problem that comes into grading because we live in a world where grades are transactional and yeah, there's a lot, there's so much like I, in, in my, in a high school, in my high school setting, students will say they've just been graded for completion so often and they'll turn in an essay that is not, is not what I, first of all, it's just not what I think they could write. Like, I think that if they took the time to spend like to actually think through and write what like spend the rigorous time to craft an argument or spend rigorous time reading and thinking about a text in a way that is like deep and meaningful if they were to do that then they would be able to perform a lot higher but they're not doing it because it's like oh well Mary, i'm just gonna i'm gonna skim this text say that i've read it slap down something on paper and that's that. And then I, even in like shorter weekly assignments, if I give, if I give a student like a 70 or an 85 and I've had students say, what do you mean? How come I didn't get full credit on this? Like, what did I, I did it. 
Like I turned it in. How come it's not full credit? I was like, yeah, you turned it in. But like at the, at the top of the assignment, I've given you a checklist of things that I'm looking for in this written response. And you're, you haven't met them. You haven't done all three of these things. And so therefore you don't get 10 out of 10, (laughs) you get 8.5 or seven out of 10. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's, we need to move away. I don't, I, I don't have a smarter way of saying this, but like we need to move away from grades as like a transact. I don't know. Grades as transaction or grades as the point of learning um, versus finding ways and, and like, well, I, let me ask you this question. You talked a lot about students not having the space to take risks um, or students not really not having the space to fail. Right. How, which I totally agree. I think we need to find ways and reasons for students to have the space to take risks and improve and get better. So how do you create that? Like, how would you create those systems or that incentive? Yeah, I I appreciate that question. I, for me, it's, you go to your student example who got that 7.5 or 8 because they didn't meet the expectations. Like one of our pretty core policies is like, you can revise it. And mm-hmm. like, and like that takes my power off the table. Cause I do think this is an article about power too, would be the other point. Like this idea of like this transition of power and authority away from a hundred percent, the professor, or the teacher, which can be hard if you're used to having a lot of power, uh, as a teacher mm-hmm. and instructor. Uh, but I like, yeah, so I very much try to design my course in a way that on, you can revise up to a certain point on assessments, whether essays or uh, multiple choice even, because one, the revision can be further learning. So I think there's value in having that revision process Two, It kind of takes the excuse off the table. It's like, Hey, like, you know, it's very, for me, it's like, Hey, here's your opportunity. Here's the path. If you choose to take it, that's, you know, I'd love to work with you. Uh, Similar, like Mm -hmm. you were saying with like the conference scene, like really putting that on students uh, and it's very uh, communicate that to families as well. Like this process is available. But the reason I like that is that like the way it's set up, that if you're willing to do all like the genuine revision, this is not like, oh, I just like fill out this checklist and now my grade goes up. Like, no, like you show the learning at a higher level so that your grade reflects that you've met that learning. Like, yeah, the path to an A is there through the revision process throughout the course. Mm -hmm. And what I like about that is that it takes the stress a little bit away from those students who feel like this is their one-time shot. Like if I don't mm-hmm. do well on this one essay, this one assessment, I will not get an A in the course. And what I've found in this shift in the recent years to th- this type of revision-based system is that now that opens the door to genuine growth. And I know feedback at the start of the year, especially writing feedback, is relationship-based and you don't have the relationship as much yet with a lot of students. So that gets better as the year goes on. But mm-hmm. So often, like the best feedback happens with the students who aren't worried about their grade. They just want to get better as a writer. Like when I have a student get a really high score, they're getting a ton of feedback of how to get better. And sometimes I've had students say like, this is the first time I've gotten feedback that showed like critical because I'm used to just getting a good grade, teacher saying gold star, move on and like pushing students. And actually, in my opinion, when you've given the grade I get, I hate the word given. So when students, you've shown a path to the grade that students want transactionally, because I do agree with you that we're in like this consumer culture of transactional grading. But I also think that's rational for students to see it that way. 
And as much as I want to oh, pay yeah, to step, I want students to step a, a, away from that mindset. I also understand in the system that we're in why they hold that transactional nature. I'm not going to necessarily criticize them for it. So my response to that is, hey, here's the path to the transactional grade part that you want if you're willing to do the work to revise and show the mastery of learning. Now let's talk about feedback. Let's talk about genuine growth and take that aside, essentially. So like the grade doesn't get in the way, in my experience, nearly as much as it used to with that feedback, with that relationship and helping that student become a better writer. And for me, what I've found is it actually improves student performance and improves my ability to give critical feedback because the student sees that they can get that critical feedback and still improve their score. That's at least what I've found subjectively in recent years. We'll see how this Mm -hmm. goes. It seems like it's off to a good start, but again, 200 essays coming up. So we'll see how it goes in practice. Yeah. Um, let me shift. I'm going to ask you another question, which is kind of a shift, but I think it's related. So I started talking about multiple choice uh, questions for reading, and you gave me a thumbs down. Uh, tell me, uh, tell me about that. Why don't you like multiple choice uh, reading or multiple choice questions for reading? Well, I just don't think they give. I, I so yeah, I could. I'm going to rant a little. Uh, it's too early in the morning to rant. Uh, the yeah, coffee's you're up in. early. I yeah, know you're up. coffee's kicking in, but yeah. Uh, Several reasons. One, I think multiple choice is just you're not giving students genuine feedback on their learning. I think multiple choice typically is built around efficiency and cost effectiveness for standardized testing. I do think that okay. there, it, it gives across the aura, the idea of objectivity, but we both know that objectivity is an illusion. And like there's like we've both have seen, we've both written tests that have problematic multiple choice assessments. And I'm mm-hmm. in a bind because with my AP course, they're going to take a multiple choice assessment in part to get their credit uh, at the end of the year. So I build it into the course and I'm openly open with students that that is not the ideal way of assessing knowledge and providing feedback. It's not a huge stake in their grade for the course, but I need to do it with them because I want them to build the skills of how to approach that to be successful on the exam. So that's mm-hmm. why I use it, which I know feels hypocritical with my thumbs down on multiple choice. So yeah. I guess I'm curious, why do you see multiple choice as an effective way of communicating learning? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. And what I will, I will say that this is something, okay, so I'll offer two caveats. I have recently within the past two years done a complete 180 on the val on the value of multiple choice reading or multiple choice assessments. And I also think that, um, I'm also fortunate enough to have what I think is a genuinely good, a massive and genuinely good and well-written bank of multiple choice questions. So, and that is from uh, the language of composition series. It's very specifically tailored to AP Lang. Um, And what I would acknowledge is that that is rare because not all, not all teachers have that. And, um, it can be, and also it's like pretty specific. I don't use any multiple choice for AP seminar uh, because it it doesn't make sense in that context of necessarily building. Um, what I, I'll use, I will start to use some multiple choice for like kind of basic level uh, comprehension readings because when when we have when we have a, a book that we're going to read in the second quarter. But this is sort of my case for multiple choice reading. One. 
I know that students are need to need to read at a much deeper level than they're used to. Um, and that is almost always categorically true, but it is certainly true in AP Lang. There's a very, and you do this, I know that you have your system for the first, second, and third read. Um, so the goal, the purpose of the way that I'm using multiple choice in AP Lang is rooted in pushing students to read at a deeper level. And I think that the questions themselves are asked and the multiple and the answers are written in such a way that it provides it provides a, a very concrete and clear and yes efficient right because i don't want like pathway efficient a very efficient pathway to build understanding about the texts that we're reading and so the way that I've shifted through multiple choice is also in the assessment administration because students hopefully or should know that the overall process for the multiple choice assessment is not the point or like the one time you take a multiple choice quiz is not the point. Um, so when we have a new and we just finished a round of of a quiz like this where we're, we, we had multiple choice questions for two two different bigger texts. Um, the way it works is you'll get one quiz grade. Like it's a performance grade. It's pretty big, but it's not significant. But you will have you will have a minimum of three different attempts to take that quiz. Right. So the first the the first sort of wave of it is I will in class we will read and we'll take notes and we'll decon we'll we'll do the in class stuff with the text. Then the day before the quiz, I give the students half of the quiz questions for the text and they can work, they work on them in groups and the quizzes are open notes and they are allowed to come in the next day. The only thing that I tell the students is the only thing that's going to be different is the location of the answer choices. I'm going to scramble up the answer choices, but all the answer choices are going to be the same. The questions will be the exact same. There will be some new ones, but the new ones are all, are going to be similar to the ones you've already seen. So come in. Then if you have read the text and you have it, that is rewarding students for going back, studying, coming up, coming in with notes. You come in, you take the quiz the first time, you get what you get. Then the next day in class, they will, I release their scores. I tell them what their score was on the quiz but no other information. And then they go back into the text, they go back into the quiz, and they then work in groups to submit a group, like a group answers to all the quizzes. Um, and that, what I will say that this, the other day was the first time I have done this um, in this specific process. And it was one of the strongest, most engaged, the students were asking some of the best questions that I have seen in terms of really deeply analyzing a text for meaning and for structure and for style much faster and much more clearly than if it had been me up there kind of leading through one point by one point because they're all kind of working on these different questions all at once. So you have the individual answer, then you have the group answer. 
you submit both of those responses. And then finally, what I will do is I will release their item analysis where they can look at exactly which questions they can look at what they said. They can look at which questions they got right and wrong, and then they can submit a third attempt. Um, and almost always on that third attempt, they get a hundred percent. Um, and so your actual quiz quiz grade is going to be the average of those three attempts. And, and like you can, as long as you, you can, you can take as many attempts as you want to um, earn a hundred percent on that third or fourth or fifth attempt, which will count as 30% of your score. But I do feel like it's important to still have the initial process accounted for because I think it incentivizes, like I want students to feel like they need to do well the first time around in a way that is real, but is not like an, the overall grade, the end, you know, the end all be all of your grade. And so the worst you could ever really do on a, on a reading quiz is a 70%, mm-hmm. um, which is not a great grade if you're like an A plus student all the time, but I do think it offers like a, a good pathway for holding you accountable in a way that's not just like, oh, here's the quiz. These are the questions. And now we're moving on. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. I mean, it sounds like you've found a way to make multiple choice work in a meaningful way. I would argue, I don't think that's what the norm is. <laughs> and I yeah. would actually like, if you like wrote up that system, that'd be a great like Substack post itself of like how to make multiple choice meaningful because I, I, I listen to that. I'm like, that's what it should sound like. I mean, honestly, you should go talk to that Dr. Jones. Maybe he'd still have a job if he took yeah. it in their way. Uh, but it I was guess- adapted from make it stick. It was, it, it's not, it's not coming out. I'll, I'll, yeah. Once I find some time, I'd like yeah. to write it up. Cause I do think it's a, a process of learning versus assessment is the point. Yeah. Cause in my experience that multiple choice typically is the end, like that's a very easy way to get to an end stop of learning. Like where they, they mm-hmm. submit, you see your results, you might have some sort of revision process, you should, uh, but it doesn't happen that way. And often from a teacher's perspective, like I've literally heard teachers say this, like, hey, hey, here's a new stack of Scantrons for the final, you know, they fill out the Scantrons, we get to happy yeah. hour early. It's like, it's, it's in the same way that it's a lot more cost effective if you're a standardized company to do a multiple choice test and not have to pay people to do the feedback and work with the written assessment. Uh, mm-hmm. in my, especially, and I want to just name like the, the TQE process we were talking about earlier with reference, the thought question epiphany, uh, from Marissa Thompson that I've been using this year. Like when, for me, when they started writing their essay, this first, like, you know, they got their, their story, they get, you know, different prompts, got their story and just watching for the first 15 minutes, like their papers got, were filled with annotations. Like, so the right, mm-hmm. the motivation for me they knew they were going to have to write about this. That led to tons of very strong work. And then the other thing that I've tried to build this year in our classroom is they're going to, they know that they're going to have to share their annotations with others and they're going to mm-hmm. have to talk about them. And like we have our fish bowls where they're going to have a small circle in the start center of the room next week. And they're going to rotate in and out with different stories to talk about them. And I think you can get there without multiple choice being a part of that at all. I, I really, yeah, for sure. And I think that's where, like that my pathway to get to that higher level thinking and get to those annotations and thoughts has been that process and giving them really clear accountability. Like you need to do this first before you start typing, before you start talking, you have to do the work and building Mm -hmm. that culture. 
But I, I think if you're doing a multiple choice system the way you're talking about it, then yeah, that's that's different than the the traditional multiple to- choice system. Uh, I I just struggle also with multiple choice seems to imply there is a right or best answer, and I very much push against that. In and I, I think there is. I guess someone who writes multiple choice questions, there is a better answer than others at times, mm-hmm. but in terms of like the broader mindset I want students to walk into our course with is that my job is to help them discover their own interpretations with the text, bringing their own experiences and identities into a text and pulling something meaningful out of it and then defending it in a persuasive manner with their own evidence mm-hmm. and explication. And so I multiple choice seems to push against that value. And that's mm-hmm. why I don't like to prioritize it because I want to prioritize instead the idea of this inherent subjectivity, which is life, which is education, and give them the platform, give them the skills to own and deliver their subjectivity in a way that's convincing to others. That's my like wrap it with a bow. Sure, sure. So, all right, let's circle back. What are some of your takeaways for Dr. Jones? Uh, Maitland Jones Jr., if you were in a conversation with him, what would you say? I so let me be sympathetic to this. I think that he, the points he was raising are points that are fair, broader critiques of the system of higher education, of education in general, of grade inflation, of all these other points. Uh, I think that ultimately, though, the job of educators from teachers to professors, no matter how tenured or accomplished you are, is to respond to what students need and to adjust your practices to help their learning. And that the first impulse should be, if students aren't learning in my course the way I would expect them to, what can I do differently? How can I ask them explicitly what I can do differently and adjust my practices to meet students where they are? And that is going Mm -hmm. to change year after year, context after context. And in the, like, quite simply, my lowest rated system last year was curiosity and questions like compared to others on surveys. And it was still highly rated. It'd be very easy for me to be like, Oh, they did fine. Students passed the AP exam at a rate I was looking for. Like everything's good. Mm -hmm. But instead it was, Hey, what's a better system that we can elevate our game with our curiosity and, you know, inquiry in our classroom and went out and brought that new system to our room. And it might not work, but it is, being an educator is an ongoing task of learning from pedagogy and how we can get better. And it seems as if reading the article that Dr. Maitland Jones reached that point in his career, which I'm sure is normal. And I'm sure all you and I will be there at some point, I hopefully not anytime soon, where it's like, this is my way. This is how I do things. And it's worked before. So it should work now. And students need to adjust to me. And I Mm -hmm. think that's the wrong mindset for any teacher to hold, no matter how accomplished they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think um, a key, a key, a key idea that I would hold on to from what you just said was what can I do differently? Not what can I do more? I think um, so often it's like, oh, well, you have all these systems now notice like now you got to make 25 parent phone calls or now you got to not now, in addition to all the work that you're already doing, 
you got to do written comments, like try everything you're doing now, plus this other thing um, when teachers are already kind of strapped, like it, it needs to be an adaptive change. Something needs to go. Something needs to be taken out of the systems that you are already doing in order to be improved and, and replaced. And I think, yeah, there is space no matter where you are to continually do that and to continually find ways to support students because they are new every year and they did go through a pandemic. Let's not forget that they did go through a pandemic, which was traumatizing and completely shifted how they're able to learn and what they're able to learn and the, the systems that they're able to like, or the systems that they are used to in terms of learning. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I like it though. Oh, this one, was helpful. One more note, having the conversation with students of saying, Hey, I want to get better. What can I do better? And having that conversation, that's not more, that's just a choice. And that's about power. And yeah, I think a lot of times I think you're a hundred percent right. And I think next episode, or like we can talk about like how the more has been built into our system, especially with all the online tools we're expected mm-hmm. to manage at this point. But like having the conversation with students and showing them transparently that you're aware that you're trying to get better. Like, I just think a lot of teachers honestly don't do that. They don't teach, mm-hmm. don't hear teachers saying, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I want to get better as a teacher. I would love your feedback on that. And I really would love to get ideas from you of what's working in other classes. So if you're a teacher listening to this, have that conversation with your students regularly mm-hmm. and sh- like show them what you're doing be transparent as much as possible because students see things they're in other classes typically and they have ideas too and like for me that my best attempts at getting better begin with those conversations so that would be my final point is like ask your students how you can get better and have a genuine conversation with them about it yeah marcus great to see you again i'm glad we got back uh to reconnect this was fun and yeah, I've, I've been getting better just, uh, from this, from this podcast, really change. I, it really has made a pretty material difference on my classroom. So yeah. thank you very much. Same to you. Take care and, uh, have a good rest of your day. Plenty of All right, hours but, left in the day for this one. <laughs> yeah, I'm going for, you'll be proud of me going for a run. I have, I've been off, I have been off running, but I'm trying to get back. At, I'm trying to get back into shape and maybe I'll, you know, be able to do another half this spring. So I'm off, I'm off for my morning run now. Okay. I hear footsteps in the ceiling above me. So I got the three-year-old coming. So All right. it's well, you better get ready for it. Take care. All right, Marcus, talk. take care. The Broken Copier is an independent listener supported podcast for teachers. The show is written and hosted by Marcus Luther and myself, Jim Mares. I do editing and sound design for the show as well. Thanks to Casey Roberts, a blues musician born and raised in the Mississippi Delta for writing and supplying original intro music. Thanks to Tom Chitari, a jazz musician, composer, and teacher currently based in Australia. Right now you're listening to Woodstock from his album Garden, available now on Spotify. You can stream his music under the name Uncivilized. Fun fact about the album, it includes vignettes from a single called Rain Stomp, which was originally written to support Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action Network for Super Tuesday in 2020. Check out all his work at guitaruncivilized.com and uncivilizedtom.com, where you can sign up for guitar lessons on Zoom, just like I do. Links are in the show notes. 
Thanks very much to my sister, Courtney Malavik, for the graphic design you see on our social media and episode posts. Thanks to Brandon Piasecki for helping to get this project off the ground. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators, bring helpful analysis and collaboration, and celebrate everyone doing the hard work in the classroom. We hope to connect and direct time, resources, and energy towards concrete efforts that will improve student outcomes, especially in marginalized and underserved communities. We are not the only ones doing this. We want to honor and say thank you to the many educators out there, past, present, and future, who already understand their classroom practice through a lens of social justice and change. We'd love to connect with you, hear about what you're doing, and give you a space to share your work. If you want to support the show, you can help us grow and connect for free. Reach out on social media at The Broken Copier, text an episode link to your friends in education, or even share an episode to your own social media feeds. You can email thoughts, feedback, and ideas to thebrokencopier at substack.com. You can also read other essays and thoughts on teaching and learning at thebrokencopier.substack.com, where we publish all of our episodes, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.